Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation on identity politics, specifically, should racial identity form a basis for politics? If you missed part one, I really encourage you to press pause, go back and have a listen as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. How does thinking about whiteness and blackness as archetypes open up our way of understanding not just race, but ourselves? That the West's conception of blackness and whiteness sort of overlays blackness with moral ineptitude, to put it nicely. Uh, Corruption would be the worst way to put it. And whiteness with purity and, you know, goodness and things of that nature. Now in part two, principle of charity on the couch, Lloyd steps away from the theoretical and towards the personal, as he asks Ian and Chloe to reflect on just how charitable they've been to each other today. Enjoy the episode. Thanks, Ian and Chloe. Part of the principle of charity, as we always focus on, is to seek the truth, not win the fight. And, you know, it is easier to defeat a bad argument that we've created when someone's, uh, rather than someone's actual position. And so winning an argument against an individual's weakest arguments probably achieves nothing except to make you feel clever and, and maybe righteous. In that vein... What we like to do on the show with you is to talk about what you believe the alternative or the other person's strongest argument is in in three points. And so, Ian, I might start with you uh, in a brief way. If you were considering Chloe's position, what are the three strongest points do you believe of her argument? That we have to take seriously the psychology of racism, that We need to lift up, as Martin Luther King did, the power of love, and that when people who are otherwise privileged by racism, otherwise elevated by racism, do the hard work of dismantling racism, they do so in a way that reconstructs themselves, that helps themselves develop into more whole, more loving, more human beings. Fantastic. Chloe, on the charity barometer, if the, if, if the barometer, <laughs> 10 is the highest in the barometer, how did Ian do? I mean, he did that in 60 seconds. How did he do? I would give Ian an 8 out of 10. An 8. Great. <laughs> tell, tell us about the other two. What, what do you think he missed very briefly? I reject the language that that says that anyone, and I know this may be a moot point, but the, the very language of, of saying that people benefit from or are privileged from or by inequality is, is a language that doesn't quite resonate with me and I think is part of my issue with certain as- aspects of the left. Okay, good stuff. Let's turn it on its head. Uh, what are the three <laughs> strongest points of, of Ian's argument? That... Material power has real consequences on people's lives that in order to rectify or ameliorate those consequences, a multi-ethnic coalition ought to come together uh, and fight against those privileges and that it cannot do so by buying into the same paradigm of conflict that is perpetuated by the powers that be. Ian, how, how did Chloe do on that charity barometer? I love it. I would say nine. T- terrific. Okay, fantastic. Chloe, 
I mean, when you thinking about the theory of enchantment, your view on racism, what do you consider your weakest arguments are at the moment in your theory? It's a great question. <laughs> I worry that the emphasis that I put on individual work will be uh, delivered or received in a very trite way. And that I, when I emphasize the, the importance of individual work, I will not do it justice. I won't communicate to people in such a way that they will actually understand how profoundly difficult it is to work on the individual level. Mm. Okay, thank you. Ian, how about you? What's the big limitation that you frequently confront with respect to your own position? Derek Bell advanced an idea of interest convergence. And his idea was that there's no significant progress towards racial justice except when most white people who in the United States hold the vast preponderance of power come to understand that racial justice is in their interests. Bell, writing in the 80s and 90s, concluded that racism was in the material and psychological interests of most white people and therefore that racism in the United States would be permanent. I, writing in the 2010s, have come to believe that white racism mobilized by politicians, backed by dark money, is actually the single biggest threat in the lives of white people in the United States. And again, that anti-black racism promoted by politicians, funded by dark money, is the single biggest threat in the lives of white folks in the United States. And that if they can come to see that, they can join a movement for multiracial solidarity to save themselves and in turn to be part of a movement that saves the United States, that saves democracy. My biggest fear, they might not come to see that. They, that, 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 the, that the power mm -hmm. of racism, that the seeming psychological advantage of it, the, the seeming status advantages of it, the apparent material advantages of it may be so powerful that an insufficient, that a significant, maybe even a majority of white people in the United States remain attached to defending their white position rather than to joining a multiracial movement. And the result of that, I think, is going to be catastrophic for the United States, and I would say catastrophic for the world. Okay, fantastic. Let me, let me throw, let's actually just stay with the conversation uh, between the two of you. You know, there was a sort of a, a moment uh, in that conversation when we were talking about, or you were talking about kindy, where you know, there was a little bit of more energy, a little bit more passion, more conflictual uh, debate, let's call it. In the principle of charity, we, we frequently focused on trying to find good ways to argue, uh, good ways to debate. When you reflect on yourself, just for those maybe eight or nine minutes when the two of you were conversing, what do you think you could have done better in the way that you spoke to each other? Chloe, I'll start with you. Yes, I think I could have first started out by saying what I appreciated about Ian's argument and specifically what I appreciated and how it may have magnified or changed my perspective on Kendi and then stated what I thought was missing. Ian, how about you? What's your reflection on those few minutes about yourself? I think much of the energy for me comes from the idea that there's a strategic maneuvering that's happening here. And in some ways, it's a maneuvering that both Chloe and I share, but we're maneuvering in very different ways. I think both Chloe and I are, ad are addressing in a very similar question. How do you get empowered white people to really believe they need to work against racism against people of color. How do you do that? M my response is to say, hey, focus on the way in which race is a class weapon and we all have a shared pragmatic interest. Chloe's approach is 
essentially to offer white people a certain level of exoneration and exculpation and to invite their position, their participation in anti-racism by saying, hey, it's psychological, it's all of us, everybody's to blame, nobody's to blame, everybody's in the same position, everybody has the same sorts of issues, right? there. Let's be clear, that is a widely pursued strategy. It's a strategy of exculpation. It's a strategy of calling people in, making these very difficult conversations more palatable, a little bit easier to manage. But it is a strategy of exculpation first. And second, I'm not sure it's a successful strategy. I'm not sure how much change that approach actually achieves. I suppose what I was getting at, Ian, is, is that process of in that debate. So I understand the different positions. And I was really trying to get to, if you were thinking about your behavior for that moment in time, in the way that you conversed, what would have been more charitable that may have been more constructive in, those, in, in that conversation? Yeah, I mean, and, that, and, that's, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Rather than question the precise details of Chloe's argument. Mm -hmm. It would have made sense to say, let's step back for a moment and understand this familiar, frustrating rhetorical move right. in a way that depersonalized <laughs> it, but that nevertheless surfaced it. Because these sorts of rhetorical moves, sometimes they're consciously understood, sometimes not. But it's mm. very important for people to say, oh, I understand the work that's being done here. Okay. Chloe, so the, the I mean, audience can't see you, but you're smiling <laughs> and you, 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 you feel a little exasperated. This is, um, yeah, I think what, Ian, what you fail to recognize is that the paradigm through which I am moving is not primarily racial. And I know that might be difficult to contend with, but when I am sitting with another human being across from me, I am bringing all of my humanness with me and I am teasing out the ways in which my and your and everyone in the room, our complexities impact us and cause us to overcompensate in ways that might manifest in bigotry, right? And this is not an exculpatory move. Right. This is not a way in which to sort of say to another human being, let me, I'm not, a, I'm not a priest, right? I don't have that right to do so anyway. What I'm simply trying to do is to create a container in which we can bring our human, we can start with our humanity first. We can start with that power, poison, pain, and joy that we all have in our DNA. And we can learn how if we do not know how to, uh, again, get in right relationship with all that complexity within us. And if, if we instead project that onto other people in ways that are harmful and ways that can be institutionalized, right, on at scale, if we don't start with, if I don't start with this inner work first, with this inner being first, then once I try to reform these institutions, I will be at a disadvantage because I will have gone into this newly reformed institution with the same old me, with the same old unconscious biases, right? And regardless if, does it like a person who has wealth and power and, you know, has all these, these wealthy white people may very well be addicted to money and power, right? This is not something that I would want for myself. This is not an aspiration that I would have for myself. Right? So I'm not going to presume that because of the material position a person is coming into conversation with me with, that I have to somehow speak to them with a certain kind of lingo, which is popular on the left. Right? I'm simply trying to start with the human condition, which, which isn't to say, don't, let's not talk about politics, let's not talk about the history of slavery, let's not talk about the history of Jim Crow, etc., but my area of, of expertise, if you will, is that human condition. And it is not a political maneuver on my part, which is very conspiratorial, quite frankly, to, to say it is not a political. I'm not trying to be strategic. 
uh, obviously, Chloe, I don't know you. I don't know your motives. I don't know your intentions. I don't know your thought process. What I do know is that in conversations about racism, there is a distinct pattern in which people seek to make conversations about racism more palatable, more accessible, less accusatory, more exculpatory for white people. I really do share your belief that we're all human, we're all complicated, we all bring a lot of stuff with us into these conversations, we all have a lot of work to do, and to which I add, and by the way, racism is not just something about our individual psychology or about our individual morality or values, racism is actually a the most powerful political tool in the United States right now. And it's a powerful political tool being wielded in a way that threatens the nation and frankly threatens climate collapse. That's the conversation I'm trying to have. And I'm quite conscious about why I'm having it that way. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to just shift gear slightly to something more practical and just take a scenario. If, if both of you can just have a go at this uh, again, in the principle of charity, we're looking about how to influence the other. Um, we don't have to agree, but how do we influence? And Chloe, I, I there was a podcast I listened to uh, that you did with Daryl Davis. I think he is on on on, and he's done a whole batch of work around KKK and 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 how to to get people out of the KKK. And if we were taking this argument around race and we we're trying to sort of put a more practical component and some tips to it, and, and let's just go with this, what we'll call a scenario experiment. Uh, a college student comes to, to both of you and says to you, look, I, I mean, I've got a debate uh, with somebody from the KKK uh, um, and I, I, I need three tips. I need some tips from you, Ian, and some tips from you, Chloe, about how I'm going to actually engage in this conversation with somebody who, frankly, not who I disagree with, but actually who I hate and who's doing terrible things to the world. What would your three tips be to that to that person before they entered into this conversation? I, I would have to defer to Daryl Davis, and Daryl Davis is someone who has an immense amount of curiosity who was truly genuinely interested in the question of how someone could hate him if they don't even know him. And, you know, Daryl Davis basically decided to, while disagreeing with members of the KKK, simultaneously decided to be in community with members of the KKK. And so he would, for example, offer up his, uh, his 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 music bus if they needed a bus to go to a rally. I mean that's that's how far he went. He so he was generous. He was generous. He was he was generous, and he deci- he actively decided to be in community with people who hated him. Now, obviously, that's a risk to, that you have to take if you want to do so. And you're putting your life at risk if you do something like that. But there's also a, a certain amount of um, I think admirable generosity um in what in what daryl davis did and so it really depends on what this person is trying to get out of this interaction Mm, mm, with mm. with who they're interacting with in the first place okay ian what would your counsel be i mean you 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 must you know this is an issue that comes up i assume particularly uh in the left about how how you debate how you influence um uh, what what would your tips be talk to the vast majority and not to the people at the extremes. Mm -hmm. And in talking to the people in the vast majority, Mm -hmm. encourage them to shift how they're thinking about racism, to move to seeing racism as a weapon that threatens all of us, as an intentional strategy of divide and conquer, that immediately implies our only defense is to build social solidarity. That, I think, is is where we ought to be putting our time. I, I, frankly, don't have a lot of time to talk to people on the extremes, people filled with hatred. You know, you, you, you frequently on public platforms in debate. When you consider the way you are debating and influencing, uh, you're a professor, you're a lecturer, 
What are one or two of the things that you think you could do better in order for people to be more charitable to your view? Speak in sound bites. Interesting. Chloe, how about you? Same question. I think if I slow down. Tell, tell us more. Slow down in what? In, in, slow down in your tone or taking pauses or asking whether people understand? I think that if I'm in conversation with someone, as, just as I'm in conversation with Ian now, I think if I slow down and really take the time to let my interlocutor's opinions land in me more somatically, and again, state what I appreciate about my interlocutor's statements um, first, then I will be able to speak in a way that's more resonant, perhaps, with others. Okay. Yeah, coming back to you for a moment, you know, it seems to me, uh, Chloe, and I, I may have got this wrong, but there's a in the theory of, of, of enchantment, there's, there's a strong dimension around compassion, understanding complexity. Yes. I want to ask both of you with respect to racism, uh, and Ian, maybe to start with you, is there any role for public shaming? Is this, is this a good thing? Of course. Of course. Public shaming is part of the way that society communicates what sort of behavior is conducive to our vision of a just society and what sort of behavior cannot be tolerated. So obviously it's not just going to be a question of public shaming around racism. There'd be public shaming around greed, against brutality, against hatred, against bullying. Public shaming is very much shame. Very, it's very important as a, as a social, um, as an element of society in trying to, in trying to create a just society. Now, what that implies is that what we shame and how we respond to other people engaging in shaming is itself part of the conversation. We ought to be talking about what sort of behavior should be shamed, what is tolerable, what is not. How should we treat a Supreme Court justice who issues a nakedly political position? Is it over the top to interrupt his dinner? A very important conversation, but at the same time, public shaming is a feature of human societies, always has been, always will be, and plays a really important role, can play a very important role in helping us to craft the sort of society that that we want. Is there any point in saying all people who have been racist or use racist language should be public shamed, or is there a space where we say, no, not yet? No, I mean, I mean, I think it's a really great question, but it's kind of got the the the, the Kendi problem, which is it's using one word to capture a, a whole gamut of behavior, right? So there's so many different forms of racism. We need to understand that racism is a complex phenomenon. It takes many different forms. People can stumble into racism. People can express racism that's deeply internalized and that they haven't previously examined people can make decisions that are with that, that take into account the power of race in society that on some level seems racist but on another level is a decision they made to try and achieve a more egalitarian a more just society i think you chloe you were also in conversation with jordan peterson about this there is from your argument an orientation potentially to for all of us to be uh, have a supremacist view. Some of us feel superior around our intellect, uh, around how smart we are, around race, uh, a range of things, as well as, of course, we all have a proclivity to inferiority. Ian, do you think, do you agree with that? I mean, that all of us potentially have a proclivity towards racism and, um, you know, using a set of circumstances, all of us can be racist, that it's, it's, that potential is within all of us. No, but let me, but, but I I think it's because of the way you framed the question at the very end. Mm -hmm. I think the core insight is that human beings are deeply concerned about their position, their status within their communities. And people can seek to build status in ways that are socially destructive by tearing others down. And all of us- The out group. Exactly. 
And all of us are at risk of status maneuvering that builds ourselves up by tearing others down. That I very much agree with. And I think it's very much a risk for all of us. Now, I would add, that's not the same thing as saying we could all be racist. Chloe, your view on this? Well, I agree with much of what Ian just said, especially um, about how shame is a perennial fact of human societies and is a way that we regulate um, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I do think, though, that if we want to speak or if we want to fight against combat the excesses of the Fox Newses of the world, then we have to actually care about the viewers who watch Fox News. And we have to care compassionately about those viewers and not condescend to them. Because if we condescend to them, they will experience the very same psychological scarcity that moved many of them in the uh, 2016 primary to vote for Donald Trump in the first place. Meaning, there's a book that uh, called Alienated America that was written by Timothy P. Carney that detailed how many of the uh, counties that voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 primary were often counties marked by incredible amounts of scarcity, marked by alcoholism, opioid addictions, etc. These were counties in many cases that actually voted for Democrats in previous primaries. And the common thread throughout many of these counties was that scarcity, again, both material and psychological. And so if you want people, and this goes back to the second principle of the theory of enchantment, which is criticized to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, if you want to actually persuade people to even consider your point of view, again, speaking specifically about people who watch or are enthralled by Fox News, you have to actually care about them. You can't condescend to them uh, and you can't speak in a way that is unaccessible to them. Um, you have to be in community with them on some level. And the thing about the times that we're living in today, especially with COVID, um, especially with everything that we're dealing with, there's an incredible amount of scarcity in our country, in the United States at least, and, and I'm sure around the world as well. But speaking about the United States, there's an incredible amount of scarcity. And if scarcity is not dealt with in a holistic way, this is just a fact about human beings, human beings will gravitate toward the extremes. People oftentimes gravitate towards extremist white nationalist groups, for example, if you're looking at some of the psychological profiles of the men who become a part of these groups, there are oftentimes men who have dealt with serious uh, sense of a lack of self-worth, right? These are often men who have sometimes a history of attempted self-harm. This is no coincidence. And so if you, if the message that we're sending to these people is that, oh, by the way, you're, you're already insecure because we know you're insecure because why else would you gravitate towards a supremacist organization if not to feel good about yourself? You're insecure, but what we're going to do is we're going to keep telling you that you're worthless. We're going to keep telling you that, we're, that you're less than. And this is where shame can become a problem, actually. This is where shame can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, where, as the great Maya Angelou once said, if you tell someone over and over again that they are nothing, they will say to you, oh, you think I am nothing? I will show you where nothing is. And then they will become even worse than what you have accused them of being. So I agree with Ian that shame plays a role and shame will always be with us. It's a perennial fact of, of what it means to be to live in a human society. But America has been a deeply puritanical society for a very long time, since its, since its origins. Right. And so we have to ask, well, how does shame play a role given that deeply puritanical history, given our history of, you know, the Salem witch trials, given our history of the ways in which we are just now starting to have conversations about criminal justice reform. Right. And rethinking how we have unleashed shame in our society. I think that these are all questions worth asking if we want to 
produce that change that you're describing. Okay, great. Just a, a tip from you and maybe a bit of counsel, going back to the supremacist way of thinking that you were referring to and saying, look, if we don't get our own house in order, meaning our own internal house in order, we are more likely to be prejudicial. When you've engaged in supremacist thinking for yourself, meaning you feel maybe more morally righteous or smarter or whatever that filter is, how do you get out of it? How do you stop yourself from continuing that story about how fantastic you are? It's a great question. I experience my ego somatically, meaning I feel it in the body. And so when I feel superior, I feel it physically. And usually if I'm, if I'm attentive enough and I'm aware enough, then I will internally stop and notice the feeling and ask myself, what is it that I see in the other person that has triggered my ego that I am actually, uh, that is actually a part of me. And in certain aspects of psychology, this is called shadow work. Right, shadow work is when you identify how the thing that you dislike in the person that you're speaking to that has triggered your ego, that has made you feel morally superior to them, or whatever superior to them is actually in yourself. Mm, mm, mm. And so then, when I identify that that element, what that element is, it's not that I have to agree with that person, right? But I can start to overcome the illusion of separation that I've created in my mind with that person, that thing that stopped me from seeing that person as my brother or my sister fundamentally. So that's, it's a somatic process first, and then the intellectual after. We spoke about public shaming um, and, and its role and its importance. I want to go to the area of forgiveness. Let's take the scenario where somebody has been racist and or is racist. Is there any role in forgiveness in, in, in your view? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, that the important insight here is that we're complicated people. We do complicated things, but we are not just one thing. We're certainly not the worst thing we've ever done. So the idea of a potential for human growth, a potential for repentance, a, a, a a potential for repair and the importance of forgiveness, tremendously important. The corporate institutional world focuses substantively now, uh, so does the investment world, on diversity, inclusion, uh, equity programs. Chloe, your view is that sometimes these programs uh, sometimes do more harm than good. Uh, is, is that correct? And, and, and if so, what's your view? And then, Ian, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on this as well. I think that some programs do more harm than good because they tend to encourage the act of prejudging groups of people based upon their skin color, assuming the lived experiences of people based upon their skin color and encouraging folks to self-segregate, which actually I think erodes people building up their uh, muscle and capacity for cross-group empathy. And those are, I would say, three of the elements that I've seen present in some, not all, but some contemporary anti-racism approaches. In the in the corporate setting. Okay. Yeah. Any views on on that um, on on these diversity, inclusion, equity programs, and whether you think they they're doing a good job or not? I think they could be doing a better job. One thing I really want to push back on is the claim that diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals are prejudging people based on the color of their skin. That phrase, that formulation seems to make what DE&I folks are doing the moral and social equivalent of white supremacists. And I, and I, think, it's, and I think it's a very dangerous way to phrase these things. DE&I folks will be the first to say, our populations are heterogeneous, and yet we operate in a society in which 
on the whole, race makes a big difference about in terms of the position one finds oneself in, the ideas one learned about race, one's experience of race. That's very different from prejudging individuals based on their skin color, which carries a strong connotation that somehow identity and experience are inherent and rooted in nature. As to whether DE&I is doing all that it could, here I want to come back to this idea that a lot of folks on the race left have picked up a sort of a single access approach to race, that, that even within DE&I, there's a sense that race is fundamentally a conflict between whites and people of color. And I think that it very much has that aspect. So even surfacing that, I think, is helpful. But I think it would be even more helpful to say, in the context of DE&I, the reason there's so much racial tension right now, the reason there's so much conflict, the reason there's so much distrust, is because we are constantly being pushed to divide and distrust to fear and to harm each other. It really is the case that if we want to save our democracies, if we want to save our climate, we've got to defeat racial division. We've got to build cross-racial solidarity. And I think it would be enormously helpful if DE&I consultants, especially those operating in the corporate sphere, were to say so much of the division is actually a, a class strategy. And oh, by the way, corporate America, you made your peace with that when you thought what it was getting you was a low levels of regulation and low levels of taxes. But the price wasn't simply derogatory comments about people of color. The price is actually jeopardizing democracy and jeopardizing our climate, the survivability of our planet. I have emails of folks who are who sit in these DEI uh, workshops who are white, who report back that they have experienced denigration and have experienced um, um, really, quite frankly, bigotry because they are white. And so it is not some, you know, simple, I'm just, I'm just talking about the intersection of power and race and class. And this is what I mean when I am, am um, assuming the lived experiences of white people. No, it's actually quite brutal from certain, you know, people who have experienced this. And I don't want to, I think it's important not to belittle that or to dismiss that, that is a huge issue today in certain contemporary DEI workshops. Again, some, not all, and that contributes to a society in which people begin to be resentful. One of the beautiful aspects of the civil rights movement was the spiritual discipline against against resentment, and that and is an yet. element. And that is an element in certain aspects of contemporary DNI circles. So, and I so, think that we so, should speak out against that. So, Chloe, to accept people's self-report of victimization and bigotry against them because they're white is to ignore the very long and deeply rooted I'm not, not because they're phenomena. white. Not because no, they're you, white. You said people are experiencing bigotry against them because they're white. Yes. Yes. To accept it, that uncritically is to ignore mean? a very to accept their self-reporting uncritically to take their self-reporting at face value is to Oh, I should assume. Let me just let me make sure I have this right. I should I should be suspicious. I should suspect them because they are white. I should suspect their reports because they are white. Do I have that Nope, Correct. you don't have that right, but you are engaging in very reductive efforts to put words in my mouth. You okay, I'm should sorry, be aware of cultural patterns that inform how people react. For example, it might help you to keep in mind that when the Supreme Court in the 1870s began the process of dismantling civil rights laws, one of the justifications was that civil rights laws made whites the racism of the, the victims of racism, elevated African Americans to a position above whites. This is 
an important, deeply rooted cultural phenomena so extensive that now the majority of whites believe there's more racism against white people in the United States than against black people. And if you don't have that in mind as you engage with people, you can't fully understand where they might be coming from. And I completely understand that. I hear you. And what I'm saying is that people who are white are asking the workshop leads, what about this? What about this perspective? What do you think of this perspective? What do you think of this different perspective? And are being told, it is just simply your white privilege by which you ask this question. And you are, it is illegitimate that you even voice a different opinion. And if you voice a different opinion, you are simply proving the fact that you are racist. This has nothing to do with all of those historical elements which you just laid out, which I agree is a fair point and an important take into consideration. But I'm saying that people are simply disagreeing and, and inquiring in a curious way and asking the person who is not only supposed to be an educator, but is stewarding a very what I consider to be sacred experience and are being told that because of their skin color, they have no right to even question the approach. And that is problematic. You should should catalog those emails and you should publish those incidents because what I hear, what I hear is actually a right wing reactionary talking point that this is pervasive it may happen occasionally, and I've certainly seen it in, um, for example, some student groups where people are seeking status by inverting the racial hierarchy and seeking to shut down. Okay, I've seen it. But the DE&I professionals that I know are professionals. They're thoughtful. They're struggling with complicated, explosive material. They're doing their best to work through these issues in a sensitive, constructive manner. I really, right, but you're right. There is this right-wing talking point promoted by the Manhattan Institute, promoted by the anti-wokeness of Ron DeSantis that that claims that what's happening in DE&I is actually anti-white racism and the belittling, belittling of people, the shutting down of people because of their skin color. If that's actually happening, Let's get it out there and let's not let it just reside at the level of anecdote and talking point. It's, it's already been published in multiple places. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you to assume that just because you have a different experience with other professionals, again, I didn't say it was every DEI workshop or every DEI professionals. I, I said it was in certain aspects and and here and there but you, you, you jumped to you the assumption from you, you jumped to the assumption emails and, that you received and then you bootstrap yes. that up into a generic comment about the industry no i didn't i said specifically not all i said that specifically you can rewind the tape but in some circumstances but you took that and you had your lived experience and you probably heard me attacking professionals that you are that you know that was not my intent i am only speaking from my experience and i'm not speaking from a ron DeSantis talking point i am simply saying that i know of individuals who have reported this back and i think that's a legitimate problem and, and if you do not okay so that's to- that's a, and, and when you say you think it's a legitimate problem how big a problem do you think it is you know let, let's say I don't it's know. It's 10% of DEI trainings. It's 90%. Where, where, where is it and as when you say it's a legitimate problem? I don't know. I don't know the percentage, but I do know that I keep hearing about it, not only in emails, but also in mainstream publications, not simply, you know, from the Koch brothers. And I'm I'm curious, like I would I would be more than happy to acknowledge the fact, I mean, I do acknowledge the fact that there are hardworking DEI professionals. I mean, I consider that to be the profession that I am in. I don't see, I don't understand why it's difficult to acknowledge that there are also elements where, again, that shaming can become off the rails and end up producing the very same things that we're trying to fight against. I don't I don't understand the pushback here. Here's the here's the pushback and it actually goes back to one of the earlier conversations. 
It is a very powerful status quo protecting trope that those people engaged in racial justice work are themselves extremists, are themselves engaged in anti-white racism, are themselves part of an extreme woke left. That's a very powerful political trope. So now when we have conversations about whether some DE&I folks have gone off the rails or uh, are uh, snappy or, or, or even possibly bigoted against white people, that's a treacherous conversation. Because it's not impossible that that happens. That may happen a few times. It may happen sometimes. But when we give that air, what we're actually giving support to is this right-wing attack line. And we have to strike that balance. So it becomes, let me just finish. It becomes incumbent on someone like you when you say, hey, I've gotten these emails. People are really agitated about this. It becomes incumbent upon you not to stop there, but to keep going and to say, that may be a real problem, but it likely also reflects a sense among many white folks that the real problem with racism is anti-white racism, and we need to guard against that. And we also need to be careful with not giving too much fuel to this idea that DE&I as a profession is is expressing anti-white racism, the sort of idea being promoted constantly on Fox News. I disagree. I hear you, but I disagree. I don't think that is my, uh, it it is my responsibility as a DEI professional to say that the profession of diversity, equity, and inclusion is important or isn't uh, anti-white racism. I, it is, I think part of where we're misunderstanding each other is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the primary paradigm through which you operate is politics. Whereas that is not my primary paradigm at all. And so we may just have that that difference, but as you know, a my result, primary paradigm is the social construction of race and racism. And so I'm highly attuned to the way in which every conversation about race and racism occurs in a context that shapes its meaning and power. And I think my right, push power. on you, Chloe, is to say, how attuned to that context are you? You're talking about racism in a way that that makes it more palatable to white audiences. Are you doing that intentionally? Have you thought about that? Do you recognize it? Likewise, whenever you criticize DE&I, you will be heard in a context in which there's very strong right-wing status quo preserving attacks on the industry. Are you aware of those attacks? Do you feel like you have an ethical responsibility to frame your remarks in a way that minimizes their utility to reactionary attacks on the industry you're a part of? Right, that That's the conversation I'm having. I'm not going to, every single time I speak, ask myself, well, how is the right-wing cabal going to take advantage of my words? Or vice versa, how is someone on the left going to manipulate what I've said in order to advance their position? Again, you are coming from a paradigm, and you know, for lack of a better word, it's a very Gnostic paradigm, if you're familiar with that, which you know goes back to the Hellenistic period of the West, where we're operating in such a framework where it's 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 the same as this like fundamental oppressor versus oppressed paradigm where the totality of my existence has to be defined by who is trying to oppress me who is trying to c- cajole me into a position i don't want to be in who is trying to use me in order to advance power and this is precisely in my personal opinion, the, can, the, can the I ask you, same Chloe? lives. Can I, can I, I, I would like to finish. I'm really genuinely interested. I would like to finish my point, please. Um, this is what Ralph Ellison wrote about an invisible man, right? This is what the main character, this kind of, this, this way of People viewing the world. Complex. I understand of, it. It's not Manichaean. That's not what I'm it, doing. So but, can we, but, can we move but, on? But you see, I, I think I was very, respectful for the most part. And I know I failed in some ways and I apologize for that. 
But I, th- I think I was very respectful in allowing you to finish your positions and your points. But what I'm saying is that I think we operate in the world according to two very different levels. And we perceive the world in two very different ways. And that's okay. But I am not going about the world constantly calculating like how much power and privilege and because I just don't see myself in that reduced way. And I think it can be very disempowering to try to sort of superimpose that paradigm onto others. So when I say to you, I have received emails from individuals, human beings, right, who have been disrespected, mistreated because of their skin color, I want to live in a world where I don't have to constantly think about how Fox News is going to try to manipulate what I say, because quite frankly, I identify as an anti-racist professional. So there will then be plenty home. of people. There will be plenty but if you're of people not going to stay Fox home, News, you live in that world. No, but there will be plenty of people on at Fox News who will also sling things at me the same way you're doing right now. Right? I get it from both sides. Yeah. It's cool. You're, right? so, you're, but, um, you're a professional working on, working on issues of racism professionally, counseling people about racism professionally, doing DE&I work professionally. Yes. Y- y- you live in the world. So you can't yes. turn around and say, I don't want to think about the world. I don't want to think about how no, racism I works. Wanna, I don't want to think about dominant tropes. I don't want to, I don't want to think, I don't want to behave in such a way that I encourage people to be reductive and to caricature one another. And what I am hearing, and yet, in, what I am hearing in some of what you are saying is a kind of caricature, caricaturization. Or I have to think to myself, oh, is that because this person is white? Let me assume that this person you hear that from might me? be so that's that's what i'm hearing from from what from your response hmm. from your responses to me that's what i'm hearing what i'm saying is hey there are social patterns we should be aware of and we need to keep those in mind and i'm i'm very i'm i'm struck by your sense that that you're worried about being reductive um, so you're not going to think about social patterns. You are in the business of thinking about social patterns. That is that the business are, of DE&I and racism. I think we're pointing out, I think that's the difference. We're, we're operating. We can both see two different sets of social patterns that overlap, and we are choosing to highlight different sets of social patterns. And I mean, I'm okay with that. That's fine. But I don't think it's fair to suggest that what I'm pointing out is not a social pattern in and of itself. Let's let's leave it at that. And can I can I ask you, Ian, just in the world of evidence, because you 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 sort of questioned the anecdotal evidence um, that Chloe brought into the conversation. But at what point, if if there was evidence that X percent of these uh, uh, programs had a certain effect on people or X percent had an effect on other people in different ways. Like how important would evidence be in shifting your view and in your view, Chloe, if you found out that actually, you know, maybe you're overweighting um, a small amount of anecdotal evidence that for those individuals, let's not forget, they were damaged because they're human beings and we don't want any human beings to be damaged. But if you found out it was 0.1% of people in a survey was done, would that change your view? And Ian, if we found out that, you know, 14.6% of people were actually becoming more, uh, you know, less likely to feel cross-racial solidarity because of these programs, would that change your point of view? And sure, may- sure. I, I, I mean, I think the, the evidence question is enormously important. And yeah. right, so so have um, people trained in social sciences investigate precisely this question. Let me make a distinction that so far has has been elided. It's a distinction between DE and I engaging itself in bigoted uh, approaches to race, and DE and I engaging in approaches to race that may be less productive. Um, 
okay, so so here's how that's here that's how here that here's how that's play, playing out. If twenty percent of white respondents say, "Hey, I did a DEI training and they were racist against me because I'm white. They mistreated me because of my skin color." I would respond to that by saying, "Knowing those folks, I really doubt they're racist. I really doubt they hate you because of your skin color." But I would also respond to that by saying, "But there's some sort of other problem here." These folks need to think about how the message is being received and need to look for a different way to bring people in. Both of those things can be true. And and we know that the the sort of basis of critical race theory is not saying white people are racist. It's saying there are systems and culture and institutions and, and the subconscious that might mean that you're caught in a system of racism without you being aware of it. And I think individuals can you know, misunderstand that nuance, which is very hard, I've got to say, Ian, for many individuals to appreciate. They're told that you are um, privileged as a white person, even if you might not subjectively feel privileged, that you're benefiting and are complicit in a system of racism, even if you are, you know, do everything you can every day to be nice to to people of colour. It, it's it, it's a message that can be true as well as be received with with a sense of affront by people who are white. And that's something which which is complex to manage if you're an instructor. How do you oh, deliver think, that in a way right. that's going to, that it's going to um, go to Chloe's second tenet, which is to, you know, criticize to enlift, not to not to disempower. But Chloe, just going to you, and then we should should wrap up because we've taken so much of your time. It's been such an extraordinary conversation. Lloyd and I are going to be ruminating on this for a long, long time. But how do you think about evidence and not to denigrate the experience of any of the people whose experience, putting aside some of Ian's suspicions or, I guess, questions that whether their experience might come from a, a sense of privilege, but let's even put that aside Say you found out that really it was 0.36% of people, would that help you feel more confident in the diversity and inclusion training that's happening at the moment in the mainstream? Yes, and I actually don't, I mean, I, I'm not sure how pervasive some of the things I describe actually are. I, I know for a fact that there are a lot of well-operated and run DEI organizations out there so yes, to very simply answer your question, if I was made aware of the fact that it was a very small percentage, that would certainly transform my view of the of the whole pie, so to speak. But I continue to see this come up, not only in yeah. emails, but also like <laughs> just like mainstream news, not just Fox News, like mainstream news publications have talked about this. Yes, um, yes. all over the political spectrum. So, Ian, Ian, can I ask you as a final thing, sell me a version of white privilege that would inspire the white working class poor? Let me be clear that I haven't simply been residing in the ivory tower. I've actually gone out and worked with yeah, you. That's why I'm asking you the question. Because you know this. You know this. How would you sell it? A lot of folks don't want to know about white privilege if they think they're going to lose something, something's going to be taken away from them, then sure. they pretend not to know. They pretend, right? They're like, nope, don't know about it. I have no idea what you're talking about. But when I've gone to predominantly white trade unions and said to their leaders, to their officers, you're losing your members. They're voting for, for politicians who are dismantling the labor movement. And the reason mm. they're doing so is because they're being galvanized by racist appeals, the leadership says back, how do we integrate our union? How do we deal with implicit bias? What are best practices? In other words, I think you have to communicate to folks, including the white working class, that social solidarity is the only thing that's going to save them. And that in particular, Social solidarity across racial lines is necessary because racism is the primary weapon in the class war the rich have been winning for 50 years. And now, and this is, I think, Chloe, where your work becomes so important. Once people get to this sense of, I got to do this, I, I really got to do this, 
then there's so much work to figure out, well, how do I do it? And what does it mean? And how should I work through this? And what are my defenses? And how did this help me? Right? I mean, it's, you definitely, this is very much a both and sort of situation. We have to get people to see that fighting racism, creating human connection across race, race lines is in the interest of all of us pragmatically and then give them the tools to actually build that solidarity. Thank you, Ian and, and Chloe. And I mean, if that's a message that hopefully listeners could take back, which is that it is both and, you know, the two ways of seeing the world can sometimes compete if we're in a world of scarcity, if it's one or the other. But hopefully they're not used as a way to weaponize one group against each other, but can use as a world, you know, in a world to sort of complement and expand our understanding. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you next time. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.